Hello from the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain here at MIT's Media Lab in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm Amy Trahar. And I'm Drummond Reed. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Thank you so much for joining us on the road. It's a pleasure to be here at the MIT Legal Forum on AI and Blockchain. Today, we're talking about self-sovereign identity with Drummond Reed. <laughs> Drummond, I just had the privilege of sitting in on your keynote here on the second day of the MIT Legal Forum. And it was firstly, fantastic job. It was just excellent. I'm hoping for the listeners, you can give us a gentle introduction to self-sovereign identity. A gentle introduction. Uh, so, so basically condense what I just took uh, 45 <laughs> minutes to say in a very short period. I don't have the slide right in front of me, but I do know it well enough. So we, we define self-sovereign identity as it's a new form of lifetime portable digital identity for any person or organization or thing that doesn't require any centralized registration authority. And you, it's cryptographically provable that you have the identity and no one can take it away. Meaning no government, no phone company, no internet service provider, no domain name registrar, nobody can take it away. It is truly yours for life. And beyond, actually. You know, with all the lawyers here, they're asking about what about, you know, wills right. and, and, <laughs> yes. and, 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 you know, digital trusts and everything. And it's like, yep, it's perfect for that. So just to take it back a, a little bit, identity is a word that's often used to mean subtly different things. So maybe for our listeners, the Oxford English Dictionary defines it succinctly as the fact of being who or what a person or thing is. So ISO 29115 prefers the broader set of attributes related to an entity. So in what sense are you talking about entity? And then maybe we can have a better understanding of what self-sovereign identity is. Sure. Yeah. So... Even though mostly when we're talking about self-sovereign identity, you know, we're talking about people because people are the thing that need this new form of identity the most. In fact, the entities identified by self-sovereign identity are anything that needs to be connected or communicate on the internet. So that means not just people, but also organizations and units of organizations or departments, and, but also things, the whole internet of things, anything you need to communicate with. I mean, think about your car, right? Your washing machine, your intelligent fridge, your intelligent toaster, um, your, your thermostat. All of those need identity. They actually need self-sovereign identity because they need to be able to prove you know, that, that you're, you're talking to them. And so it's anything that needs that uh, to be identified. And that's why the heart of it is this new form of identifier called a decentralized identifier. And unlike conventional identifiers, as I showed at the start of my presentation, the fundamentally new thing here is that every one of these identifiers has a public key. In fact, the identifier is the address of the public key on a blockchain. So any person or organization or thing is now gonna be able to say, Here's my DID, that's what we call it, or some people call it a DID. Here's my decentralized identifier. And you can go look on the blockchain to verify my public key. So if I'm sending you an encrypted communication, if I'm authenticating to you, if I'm sending you um, a digital credential that I've signed, you know how to verify it. And every person, organization, and thing in the world will know how to do it in a standard way, a lot like the internet. <laughs> 
I mean, currently, maybe you could elucidate, what is the identity problem today? Ah, well, there are a lot of ways we could talk about that. The primary thing I point out is uh, the silo problem, right? Because we don't have an interoperable identity system, we don't have an internet for identity, you have to go get a different one every place you go, right? Now, I'm going to ask you right now, Amy, how many usernames and passwords do you think you personally have? Oh, too many to count. On one and how do you keep track of them? I write them down on a piece of paper. Oh, that's such a good, <laughs> safe thing to do, too. <laughs> right? So, that, I mean, that's the classic identity management problem all of us have as individuals, right? We exactly. just have hundreds of usernames and passwords, and there are just countless articles out there about how unsafe that is. Besides, it's a horrible user experience, right? With self-sovereign identity, I'll be very clear, like just one of the lowest hanging fruit we're going after is eliminating usernames and passwords. You should be able to go to any website or any place you have to authenticate and be able to push a button and, uh, I mean, the classic user experience now will be, you, you, for instance, go to a website, you push a button, your phone will buzz, you will use a thumbprint or a facial recognition, whatever the biometric is, and you're done. Right. You're in. That's fantastic. And I was thinking that maybe you'd also mention the centralized solution that exists today and how you're differentiated. Oh, yes. As well, far as, you know, what the current identity problem exactly. is. Exactly. So as a result of, the, of these identity silos, the reason you have so many usernames and passwords is they each have to centralize identity. And it's not hard to understand why that is. We started out, every network had to manage identity on that network, right? We didn't have the internet until we connected all those things, and that created this problem of internet identity. So each of those identity databases out there ends up becoming this honeypot of identity information, which if you can break into, you know, and they're just unfortunately hundreds and hundreds of examples, but Equif everyone talks about Equifax right. right now as being the latest one because it was so large. If you can break into that and get that identity data, now you can go, you know, steal all those identities, right? Identity theft, it just becomes uh, rampant. So it is the centralization of that identity information is part of the problem. The second part is that that information you, that you use to verify your identity, today it's just data, meaning anyone who can go learn your social security number, your mother's maiden name, right? Uh, where you went to school, the year you were born, suddenly they can go, you know, spoof your identity. And when we move from that to where your identity is established by an identifier that is the address of a public key, now you can verify your identity with a private key that you own and control and you keep them on your mobile phone and on your tablet and on your computer and in your car and your TV and that's the only place they live so that spoofing your identity, right? Trying to, to steal that identity will require actually stealing those private keys and when they're out on the edge of the network, that's gonna be really hard. Right. There are going to be a lot of very frustrated fraudsters. <laughs> That's good for us. <laughs> so maybe you can help explain the difference between digital ID and how other service providers enable people to privately assert identity information using trusted, existing trusted providers such as banks, telcos, mm. governments, you know, helping them connect to critical online services, for example, with right. the digital credential that they already have and trust. So... Today, the approach has been, you know, before the emergence of self-sovereign identity, it's been called federated identity. And it's going to uh, a trusted service provider of some kind. It might be a bank, it could be a university, uh, it could be a social network. 
and establishing an identity there and then being able to go someplace else and use it again, right? And you're federating that identity. And it's been the best solution that we've had so far uh, so that you don't have to have all those usernames and passwords and you can leverage the trust you've established with that provider. They call them identity providers. The problem with it is, first, that identity provider is now baked into all those relationships, right? You have a dependency on that. Second one is those identity providers don't really want to take on all the liability of all those other relationships you're trying to set up. So they limit their liability quite a bit, which is the reason you can't use Facebook to log into your bank or your government you know, accounts and all that. So again, it's, it was a necessary evolutionary step before blockchain and self-sovereign identity, but the way it should work is exactly the way we actually prove our identities offline today and that we've evolved over centuries to do it, right? You carry around a wallet in your you know, pocket or purse. It's got a set of credentials that you were issued by different trusted authorities. Um, sometimes those same, you know, the bank or the driver's license or your passport office. And when you need to prove your identity, you show that credential to another human being that looks at it and verifies it and says, okay, I trust that authority, so I will give you the privileges you're asking for, like getting on a plane, right? With self-sovereign identity, we can now take that same system, which, by the way, is decentralized. There are no, you know, each of those authorities is still an authority, but you carry the wallet. You decide which credentials you want to put in there, and you decide where you want to use them. And when you do use them, that's private, right? When right. I show my Washington State driver's license, uh, you know, to a bar, Washington State doesn't find out what bars I'm going to. So uh, that's the way it should be online. You should be able to be issued uh, these digital credentials and then be able to go any place and use them without the issuer knowing that. And that is what self-sovereign identity allows. Those, those decentralized identifiers are used to, the issuer uses that to sign a credential and gives it to you. And now you use your decentralized identifier to sign it when you give it to that third party called the verifier. And now the verifier can look at it and say, yep, that's look up on the blockchain. Yeah, that was really you that signed it. And then go back and say, yeah, it was really the Washington State driver's license authority that signed that driver's license. Yeah, we can accept it. We can do the same thing online that we've been able to do offline. It's a really interesting state of affairs. As soon as you turn it into a digital, you're leaving behind that type of footprint. And it's a really interesting context in which, for example, I think the Department of Homeland Security is funding sovereign and leaving that kind of digital footprint behind for any type of government is an interesting <laughs> use case. So maybe you can speak to that a little bit. So I, I want to make it very clear that one of the biggest advantages of what I just talked about, of you owning the digital wallet and having the credentials issued to you and you can now go elsewhere and use them, is privacy. When you use those credentials, if you use the proper cryptography, um, the issuer of the credential, for instance, you know, the Washington State Driver's License Authority or the U.S. Passport Office, they don't know where you're using it. And they don't know that the verifier is going looking on the blockchain to, to get their public key, right? It's a public blockchain. It's just like, you know, you're using the internet and they don't know. So it's actually enabling much greater privacy than we have today because only you can use those digital credentials. No one else can. You, you have the private key. And uh, when you go to present them to a verifying site or service, they're the only ones that know that you're coming there. And again, you have to use the right cryptography to protect that. But that is what blockchain technology is all about, is we're now bringing cryptography into everyday right. life, right? That all these cryptocurrencies, every one of them depends on you having the private keys to exchange it. 
Yeah, I think that's really important for our listeners to understand. Thank you so much for going over it. Self-sovereignty of data and root identity. I think the notion of that was initially proposed through the Windover principles here at MIT and, or through ID Cubed, which incubated it at MIT in 2014, really to advance the notion that only the individual has um, authority to assert their own um, identity and their data. Right. And it's really interesting to see how this has evolved since that point in time. MIT has been a leader in this area of, of uh, what's now self-sovereign identity, user-centric identity, as long as I know. I've been I've been at multiple conferences here. Uh, Dasa Greenwood and, and, and Sandy Pentland have been you know, just, just countless times. Uh, so they, they really have been at the forefront of this for a long time. It's so exciting to, to see it actually turn into a viable solution for, for consumers. There's no, there's no question. I mean, I have been doing digital identity for, oh, I hate to admit this, 20 years now, internet identity. There's an industry event that happens every six months called Internet Identity Workshop. They just had number 25. Wow. 25th anniversary. And... Uh, in all that period, there's never been a sense that we've really suddenly got to a big breakthrough to solve the problem until self-sovereign identity, and which is enabled by blockchain and distributed ledger technology. That's really how we can finally get to the decentralized solution that we've always been trying to do. There's another term I've heard bantered around at MIT, digital sovereign identity. Is there a difference between self-sovereign and digital sovereign identity? Have you encountered that? Um, no, it's usually the word digital gets left out because self-sovereign identity requires digital infrastructure. I mean, the, the irony is uh, self-sovereign identity is really what we've had in the offline world, right? With you carrying your wallet, your own credentials, and you decide where you want to assert them. We just have never needed to call it that. Right. Now online, digitally, we've needed to actually develop the infrastructure to do it in a decentralized way that we've been doing it offline for centuries. Right. For my second last question, Drummond, I want to ask you, is any of this being standardized? Yes. As a matter of fact, Amy, all of it is being standardized. Everything we're talking about here, and again, MIT is, is one of the homes of the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, and uh, that's where some of the key standards for this, DIDs, decentralized identifiers, you can just Google that term and you will find the specification that's in the credentials community group at the W3C. We're also uh, standardizing now how the key management is, is going to work for that, for decentralized identifiers. And that's called Decentralized Key Management System, DKMS. Um, that work's being funded by the Department of Homeland Security um, here. There's uh, Neil John there, the, the, the program manager for identity and data privacy, is just a visionary in this area and recognizes that this is the long-sought solution to really you know, interoperable, strong digital identity. And so he's been funding research in this area, uh, which I've personally been working on. And then the standards are now being carried out. For example, the Sovereign Foundation and the Sovereign Network is a global public utility, a new blockchain that's been designed just to do this. So it's, you know, Bitcoin's been designed for cryptocurrency and, and Ethereum uh, for, for smart contracts. Now we're going to have a global blockchain whose only purpose is self-sovereign identity, provide these decentralized identifiers and enable the exchange of verifiable claims interoperably worldwide, you know, the internet for identity. So, uh, and that's, if you're, anyone's interested in sovereign, it's sovrin.org. And uh, there's a library page there to, uh, you know, to look up uh, white papers. And there's a whole uh, page on the stewards of the network. Uh, it's a public permission network. So you can go see what organizations are involved. 
I just love what you're doing, and I know uh, the consensus here has been great enthusiasm around the whole project. Thank you so much. Before we close for today, I have one last question for you. If our listeners would like to follow up, how can they reach you? Sure, you bet. Uh, so I am on Twitter, uh, Drummond Reed. It's all one uh, word, D-R-U-M-M-O-N-D-R-E-E-D. And uh, you can also reach me by the Sovereign Foundation. I am one of the uh, 12 trustees, and that's drummond.reed at sovereign, S-O-V-R-I-N, dot org. At Evernim, it's drummond.reed at evernim.com, E-V-E-R-N-Y-M.com. You should be a pretty easy guy to get a hold of. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, uh, and I, do, I, I encourage that, though. I, at the Sovereign Foundation, I chair the Trust Framework Working Group, and I can't tell you what a pleasure it has been to come to this event and talk you know, about this, about Sovereign and the Sovereign Trust Framework to some of the s- smartest and, and most motivated attorneys in the, in the world, and just the overwhelming you know, questions and enthusiasm and volunteers that have come out of the audience here today. This has just been a tremendous event. Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guests for joining us today. Thank you so much, Drummond, for coming in and firstly for giving such a fantastic keynote at the MIT Legal Forum and also for being our interviewee this afternoon. Well, thank you very much for having me, Amy. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS, find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.